is happening now. We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. I liked our Prime Minister more when he was sunny ways and not a divisive hurricane. Even Dr. Tam says it's time to move on with the new plan. Here's Scott Thompson! Yikes! Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. It's 900 CHML. Will Weber is on the board. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Wow, what a uh, a difference 24 hours makes uh, in the political cycle. We saw last night uh, the emergency meeting, uh, uh, emergency debate. Uh, in regard to the protests in Ottawa and such. And, you know, the same old, same old from the same old, same old over and over again. I was watching it for a bit and then, you know, quickly, uh, you know, grew tired of it. Although, again, uh, more calls for unity and and less divisiveness, especially with so many uh, large percentage of the population uh, vaccinated. And an interesting turn of events uh, earlier on this morning and this less to do with the protests and the convoy, which has just taken a life of its own, um, is just the divisiveness in the country. And a liberal MP uh, from Quebec, uh, not really well known to us, but certainly very prominent uh, in Quebec and in uh, the Quebec liberals, head of the Quebec liberals, actually, a liberal MP by the name of Joel Lightbound uh, spoke up and uh, has been saying what a lot of us have been thinking and that uh, this divisiveness has got to stop. But not only that, um, pretty much uh, unveiled, which many pundits had, had already known, but just in the days prior to uh, the federal election campaign starting, uh, the prime minister drastically changed his stance on uh on mandating vaccines at one point saying he would never do that and then as the as the campaign started uh they made an active shift to create a wedge issue against the conservatives and that's what it did it it backed them right into a corner and they did all of that to win a majority to win the election and that's basically what this mpp or sorry mp uh joel lightbound came out and said we're going to read you a, a bit of a transcript uh but first i want to play you a little bit of what the prime minister had to say at the emergency meeting finally making an appearance uh last night when this all started here's the prime minister this pandemic has sucked for all canadians But Canadians know the way to get through it is to continue listening to science, continuing to lean on each other, continuing to be there for each other. Everyone's tired of COVID. But these protests, these protests are not the way to get through it. 
Uh, again, no real solutions and another dramatic speech uh, asking us to listen to the science. But Dr. Tam echoing uh, this week what Dr. Bonnie Henry out of British Columbia and Dr. Kieran Moore said two weeks ago now. And that is we got to start opening up. So I'm not sure what science he's listening to. Uh, but here's what uh, the Liberal MP Joel Lightbound had to say, a piece of his news conference earlier today. From a positive and unifying approach, a decision was made to wedge, to divide, and to stigmatize. I fear that this politicization of the pandemic risks undermining the public's trust in our public health institutions. This is not a risk we ought to be taking lightly. Though I am alone voicing these concerns publicly today, I can tell you that I'm not the only one who feels to varying degrees as I do within our ranks. I remain hopeful that this call for more humanism, for more reason, and for more hope will be heard. That is Liberal MP Joel Lightbound speaking out against uh, the Prime Minister and his divisive uh, nature. Uh, here's a bit of the transcript from Rachel Gilmore from Global News. Uh, he said that the government should quickly offer a quantifiable timeline for restrictions being limit, uh, lifted, um, that the government should start negotiating with the provinces on health transfers, which, man, that was always getting lost in the sauce here, uh, that this is all about, the restrictions are about stopping our, our crumbling health care system from uh, collapsing. Uh, also adds in French that not only um, one to express some degree of unease with the direction the government is taking on this approach uh he goes on to say not everyone can earn a living on a macbook at a cottage which is directly uh targeted at the uh prime minister it, it appears uh he said we must have a clear and measurable benchmark for when measures will be lifted the impact is not uh the same if you make two hundred thousand dollars or three hundred thousand dollars a year versus 15 to 20 bucks an hour at least if the benefits were clearly explained with data and projection, not with talking points, it could make the burden more bearable. It's time to stop dividing Canadians, to stop pitting one part of the population against the other. I can't help but notice with regret that both the tone and the policies of my government changed drastically on the eve and during the last election campaign. From a positive and unifying approach, a decision was made to wedge, to divide, and to stigmatize. I fear this politicization of the pandemic risks undermining the public's trust in our public health institutions. This is not a risk we ought to be taking lightly. Uh, though I am uh, alone voicing these concerns publicly today, I can tell you that I'm not the only one who feels to varying degrees as I do within our ranks. Uh, he said he hopes that the government will shift its approach so he's still comfortable remaining a uh, Liberal MP. He, th he goes on to say, I think the Liberal Party has been historically open for dissent and different opinions, uh, he said, as to whether uh, he should be kept in caucus or not. So uh, just a, an astounding turn of events. And, and here it is right here, talking about on the eve of the election campaign, turning this from a positive and unifying approach to vaccination, a decision made to wedge and divide and stigmatize. And that's obviously 
to uh, to create a wedge issue during the election. And at this point, um, it, it, it's going to be fascinating to see uh, how the prime minister reacts to uh, not only what's happening, but uh, also just the inability to get control of what is going on in Ottawa. All right, we've uh, chatted a lot in regard uh, over the last couple of years in regard to uh, the global pandemic, uh, obviously shortages of labor, uh, people not being able to find work. Uh, and, and now as we're slowly getting out of this, obviously there is a, uh, a need for more people as slowly things start to uh, open up. Uh, and there's lots of innovative ways to go about doing that. And it's interesting to see how not only people uh, pivoted, you know, the magic word at the beginning of all of this, but how they're doing pretty much the same coming out, uh, hopefully, the other end of this. The Stony Creek-based Lou's Kitchen is holding a virtual hiring fair this Thursday, February 10th. It's from uh, 10 a.m. to 4.30 for production general labor workers to talk more about Lou's Kitchen, what it is, and, and their approach to doing this. Let's bring in Blake Cornelius, Director of Human Resources with Lou's Kitchen, and with us now. Blake, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, thank you, and thanks for your interest in uh, in this particular uh, issue and event, Scott. So, as before, we get to the actually hiring and, and the the virtual hiring fair that you're going to have. Uh, tell us about Loose Kitchen, what it's all about. Well, we're a meat processing facility located in Stony Creek, and we've got a, a sister company located in uh, Brampton as well. Uh, we process uh, quick and easy uh, products. Uh, meat products, vegetable products uh, that we uh, put into the store. It's fast meals, uh, good quality, uh, you know, ribs, uh, chicken, all of that, uh, so that people don't have to spend an awful lot of time in their busy lives. We do uh, the cooking for them. This is quite a growing industry, isn't it? Uh, prepared food this way. It's it's a huge, huge uh, section of the grocery stores uh, nowadays. We've been doing it for about 40 years, uh, believe it or not. But, uh, you know, more so with the way lives are, you don't have the time to cook. So we kind of do that for you. Quality and, and ease, we think, is a great combination. So what has it been like? Obviously, you said, you know, you've been around doing this for a long, a long, long time. What was it like before a uh, pandemic? What's it like now? Obviously, you're looking for people. Uh, but how has that changed uh, the way we view things and in, in, in our priorities and such? How has that changed business for you? Well, uh, you know, when we talk about, you know, the, the advent of COVID, um, you know, there, there's been perhaps some trepidation for people to come in uh, to a you know an employer that's going and we've been going a thousand miles an hour uh, mm. from the start we're essential uh, we've got to put food on the table in the uh, um, grocery stores so we've been going and going the issue is as we grow we just aren't getting enough people showing up whether that's uh, you know government subsidies whether it's you know COVID forcing people to be at home with their kids. You know, we, I wish I had a definitive answer for all of that, uh, but we just need talent to, to come in. Uh, we, you know, in the past, uh, we were more minimum wage. We aren't that way anymore. Uh, you know, we've, we understand what uh, people need out there. They need a living wage. We provide that now. We provide the benefits. We have all of that in place. 
Um, and, and yet we're still faced with not enough people uh, within the plant. How many people do you employ there and how many are you looking for? We, we've got, I mean, between our production people, which is about 100, and then uh, all of our supports and office staff, we've got about 130 to 140 people here. And how many are you looking for? Well, we'd like to get another 10 out on the floor. You know, there have been, uh, uh, you know, times where we've hired uh, we bring people in, we give them, uh, you know, their employment agreements, and they don't show up for work day. Mm. Uh, or, you know, they're here for a little bit of time and then decide that maybe the work isn't for them. Um, you know, again, I wish I had all of the answers, uh, but for whatever reason, people just aren't uh, maybe completely motivated to come into work for whatever reason. Uh, who is the work for? What is the work like? Uh, the, well, it's it's a meat process. It's a meat processing facility, yeah, yeah. Scott. It, it, you know, we have to work in cool conditions. It's like working in a refrigerator. Right. Uh, you know, four to four to eight degrees Celsius out there. Um, you know, it's packaging. It's it's mm-hmm. producing. It's uh, you know, cutting meat, trimming meat. Uh, operating machinery that uh, spices or sauces or tenderizes uh, the product. Um, you know, general labor uh, work, uh, it's generally non-skilled, but, but truly we're always looking for bright, passionate, talented people that want to join us. Uh, and, you know, we try to make it fun, uh, you know, throughout the day. So talk about the virtual hiring fair. How's this going to work? Well, um, we've been using Indeed uh, for a, a long time. Uh, you know, I hope uh, your listeners are familiar with what Indeed is. Uh, it's certainly a job posting and uh, uh, opportunity for people to check out jobs in whatever area they happen to be in. Um, we, we've advertised on there. We do get uh, a number of uh, uh, people uh, applying, but uh, it was brought to our attention here that Indeed can do more. Uh, it actually set up a virtual hiring event where they find out what jobs we're struggling to fill or want to fill. Uh, you know, they uh, promote those open roles. They create an event uh, on their page that uh, helps people to apply directly to the roles that. Uh, that we've got advertised. They put out the interview details. They talk about the location, the uh, technical requirements that maybe people need. uh, And it allows us to promote the positions, as I've said, and to pre-screen applicants uh, with some basic questions, and then basically set up a time to uh, interview those candidates that are interested. So if somebody is interested in Blake, uh, in this Blake uh, tomorrow, what do they do? Uh, Our event is Thursday, Scott. Uh, um, Oh, sorry, Thursday. Thursday, February 10th. It's Thursday, February 10th from 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. What do we have to do to join? Yeah, uh, You know what? Visit the Indeed website, and and certainly I can uh, forward you the event uh, if you'd like for any of your listeners. But visit the Indeed uh, website. 
We've got a Lou's Kitchen hiring event uh, up there, uh, which will give them the details, uh, allow them to sign up. Uh, Anyone who signs up, we get the information. And then on that day, uh, they've got an interview time. We go in and uh, we have our conversation with them. Great idea. You you can... It's, it's a, a great sweet. idea, Blake. Yeah, uh, LooseKitchen.ca, LooseKitchen.ca to find out more. Blake Cornelius with us, Director of Human Resources with Lose Kitchen. They're looking for people, and uh, the job fair is Thursday, February 10th from 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Thank you, Blake. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Prime Minister said earlier on today, uh, uh, that he will, uh, that they will continue to follow the science, which is odd because uh, we reported a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Bonnie Henry of BC, Dr. Kieran Moore of Ontario said it's time to come up with a plan and start uh, relaxing things. Dr. Tam echoed the same thing uh, this week. So I'm not sure why the Prime Minister is still going down this divisive trail, uh, despite having so many people vaccinated. And obviously we're at the point where uh, his own uh, Liberal MPs are now questioning, or one MP is certainly publicly questioning, uh, the divisiveness in the country. Let's bring in Randall Denley, author and columnist for the Ottawa Citizen. You can also read him in the National Post. And with us is with us now. Randall, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. What's it like in Ottawa today? Uh, somewhat quieter, although there's apparently one guy downtown who's been blaring his horn for half an hour and the police are ignoring him, so it kind of makes you scratch your head, but it's definitely been quieter today than it's been any day up until now. I guess the, the challenge will be what happens this coming weekend, whether it be uh, another big influx of people or this thing going to peter out. Uh, your thoughts on what we heard this morning from Liberal MP Joel Lightbound, even in the emergency session last night, the Prime Minister seemed to hold his ground. Are you surprised that this MP came up, came out and, and said what he said? Uh, only in the sense that Liberal MPs have not been known for showing a, a whole lot of courage and voicing dissenting views since Trudeau became Prime Minister. Uh, good for him. But I think what he's saying resonates with a lot of Canadians and it took some guts to do it. I mean, Trudeau has worked very hard to see the most objectionable elements in this trucker's protest and say, you know, see, these people don't want to follow my orders. They're all like that. They're all a bunch of, you know, crazy anti-vaxxers. And, and they aren't. I mean, I think he's losing the thread on this story at this point. There was a recent Angus Reid poll that shows 54% of Canadians want restrictions to go now. That's not a fringe minority. And I think he's not taking that into account. You know, he's talking about more restrictions for interprovincial trucking. And why do we still have restrictions on you know, taking a train from Ottawa to Montreal? What's that going to accomplish? Yeah, I think the thing that he and his government have missed is that you know, since Omicron, people with two doses are just as likely to transmit the virus as people who aren't vaccinated. So mm. the whole passport restrictions thing... I mean, it served a purpose at the time, arguably, but now I don't think it's serving any useful purpose. I thought what was also... It's like he'd be backing down to move ahead. Yeah, it seems odd that it, that it is. It's about pride and and what's good for him as opposed to good for the country or the city of Ottawa. Um, what I found found fascinating too was that 
that uh, uh, Lightbound pointed out, the MP, Liberal MP, pointed out that this this change of tone all happened in the eve of the election campaign, and its sole purpose was to create a wedge issue um, between the Liberals and the Conservatives. Obviously, this would and did back the Conservatives into a corner, you know, pointing them all like, oh, they're all anti-vaxxers. Uh, and such. So, you know, this, this whole mentality wasn't about necessarily keeping us safe, although obviously the more people vaccinated, the better it is. We all encourage that. But that this was, this was an election campaign strategy. Yeah. Well, you remember that election for the first three weeks, Aaron O'Toole was doing very well. Trudeau was fumbling. He couldn't seem to yeah. find anything to sell that people wanted to buy. And then suddenly, oh, yeah, the vaccine issue. That's the one. Let's jump on that. Yeah. You know, let, let's call the other guys a bunch of anti-vaxxers, which they aren't. But unfortunately, O'Toole didn't handle it very well. He should have done what Doug Ford did in Ontario when people asked him about people in his caucus being vaccinated. Ford kid just simply said, if you're not vaccinated, you're not in my caucus. Hmm. I mean, and that, and that killed the story on one day, but O'Toole let it drag on and on. It's, it's just too bad, but Trudeau's had a field day with it, and he just doesn't want to give it up because it's worked well for him. And I think he's just become the kind of person who sees nothing except what will give me political advantage. Are you surprised he hasn't even changed, even though he hasn't changed the direction he's going in, he still hasn't changed the the stance of the direction he's going in. And by that, I mean, you know, he said, uh, there's a clip of him that we're playing, you know, we're going to follow the science. Well, again, two weeks ago, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who everybody's loved and respected out of British Columbia, and also Dr. Kieran Moore in Ontario, all said, got to move on. Dr. Tam said it this week. So how can he keep playing the science card when... There's three pretty notable people in all of this that have said otherwise. Yeah, well, it's up to somebody to call him on it. I guess it sounds good when you say it as long as you don't think about it. If he's following it, he's following it from a great distance because, you know, the science, while continuously evolving, now mm-hmm. is really pointing to loosening up, reopening, trying to return to normal. And you would think most people in politics would say, wow, yeah, let's get to that. Normal, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. Then I can switch gears and start bragging about what a fabulous job the federal government did and you know, distributing money and vaccine and doing all kinds of wonderful stuff to get us through the pandemic and total success, I did it. But you never get to that point as long as you want to stay stuck where he is, just you know, denying we're getting anywhere. I mean, like Lightbound said, and I said the same thing myself in a column, you know, we, we hit 90% vaccination. Yeah. That's fantastic. It's one of the best records in the world. Why wouldn't we celebrate that instead of going crazy about the single-digit number of people who aren't fully vaccinated, who really, truthfully, don't matter that much right now? Has he lost the room? Oh, I think he's losing it rapidly now. If he's losing it in his own caucus room, he's losing it in the country. And I've been getting a lot of feedback from readers on my columns over the last week or so. And there's a strong strain coming from people who say, look, I don't support be crazy demonstrations, I'm fully vaccinated, but come on, it's time to open up. Why does he keep pretending that it's not? So I think when you lose regular middle-of-the-road people who, you know, are not not the kind of people that Trudeau portrays the truckers as, just regular middle-of-the-road Canadians, they think, well, this just doesn't make sense. And because it conflicts so strongly with what they're hearing from medical officers of health and premiers, then you'd have to wonder. I mean, I would wonder, why do we still make Canadians 
coming back into the country, pay to take a PCR test to get back into their own country. Hmm. I mean, okay, if someone comes in and they're positive, well, lots of other people are too. It's not like they're introducing something new to Canada. What is the real positive gain of that kind of thing? It's a nuisance for travelers. It costs them money. could mean they have to quarantine in another country. It's a real pain in the neck that deters travel, restricts our right to where we go where we want to go. But what's the gain? It's been my yeah. question since the start of this pandemic. When a restriction comes in, what do we hope to gain from it? Randall Denley with us, author and columnist with the Ottawa Citizen. You can read his latest in the National Post, uh, asking about the responsibilities of the Prime Minister, the police, and the Mayor of Ottawa. Randall, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. Uh, if you're a kid, or maybe you remember uh, as an adult, uh, were you ever a, a Boy Scout, Girl Scout, uh, Guide, Cubs, you know, whatever they are called now, um, as I was. I remember us very vividly as a kid. And uh, always lots of fun. And, uh, you know, there's nothing better than going into the gymnasium and playing dodgeball when it's raining. All right, I digress. So um, uh, we know the great work that uh, that the scouts do and getting kids out and, you know, into the open and all that sort of stuff. Well, uh, and not only that, the volunteers that uh, that work so hard to, to help guide these kids and, and uh and give them a great experience uh then all of a sudden you find out a story like this and it, it kind of breaks your heart uh burlington's first port nelson scouts had their trailer stolen uh and in that trailer storage type trailer it was full of all kinds of equipment for them including uh camping equipment uh which you can imagine they need for the course uh, of the year for their activities and uh, blammo, it's gone. Find out more and exactly what happened and how they're moving forward. Commissioner Colin Ballantyne is with us of the First Port Nelson Scouts in Burlington and on the line now. Colin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good, Scott. Thanks for having us on. So what happened? Well, uh, we had an equipment trailer where we stored, as you mentioned, all of our camping gear and activity equipment and everything. And one of our leaders went and bought 12 new tents and we put 12 new tents in the tent. And two days later, we went back to go add a few more pieces to the trailer and it was gone. So somebody had hitched up to it and drove away. Where was the trailer located? We had it a storage yard in Burlington. And when it did go disappearing, we called the Halton Regional Police and we had um, reported it stolen, tried to find any video coverage or a camera of it being removed. Uh, and unfortunately, weren't successful there. So we actually jumped in and started networking with fellow scouters and contacts and friends that we have from scouting across the country on the lookout on Facebook, on Kijiji, everywhere looking for the trailer and any used equipment, scouting gear that would be, you know, identified viable to our group out there in the world. And unfortunately, we've turned up nothing. So we've ended up losing all that equipment and all that stuff that we had to get the kids out camping and doing those outdoor activities. Wow, uh, man, that's terrible. Is Do you think this was about the stuff inside or the trailer itself? We think it's a trailer itself. I, I'm yeah. quite sure that if whoever stole that trailer probably assumed it was full of contractor gear, opened the door and was like, what is this? These, yeah. are, these are scouting flags <laughs> and coolers and tents oh, and rope and tarps. <laughs> Nothing that they probably would have thought of like, this is great value to, to yeah. have nicked. Maybe not wow. value to them, but certainly was to us. 
And yeah, my goodness. So um, what did police say? What happens now? Are you just out of luck? Uh, What happens moving forward? Have you been able to raise funds or anything? What's your next steps? Um, well, we we did touch touch base with the Halton Regional Police, and um, we this actually took place in October was when the trailer was actually stolen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and over the course of the fall, we were in touch with them, trying to locate network, like we said, to to identify it. And at this point, it is considered lost. So the volunteers, we sat down as a committee and said, you know, what are we going to do? Uh, we don't have enough funds to replace all this equipment. You know, we've no. got we've been in existence for eighty years. I would have to guess there's probably thirty years of collected gear in there. Uh, and we've launched a fundraising campaign. So we are sort of reaching out to the community saying, can you help? Um, and we've had some great response. Actually, we've had a lot of former scouts um, that have come through our group reach back out and make donations, which is which oh, is that's really great. nice. Yeah. yeah, it's really heartwarming when they come back and, you know, one of the messages came in and said, you know, I got so much out of this. Other kids need to get the same thing that I did. And you're like, oh, that, that makes it all worth it. A, it makes it worth it for a volunteer to hear that and to have them contribute back is, is, is super. So how close are you to getting back to where you were? Still a bit to go? Still a bit to go. We have uh, launched a, a GoFundMe, um, which people can make donations if they want to make a 5 or $10 donation. Hey, that is fabulous. And how do we go? Uh, and if let's, let's talk about that right away. How can we, how can we help? How can we help fund this? Um, actually, the easiest thing is if you go to our website, portnelsonscouts.com, uh, there is a page there. And if somebody wants to make a donation, they can click into GoFundMe and make that. If they wanted to get it with a tax receipt, there's one additional step that you would do, and that would be linking through to go to Scouts Canada. Scouts Canada would be able to issue a tax receipt for you because it's a charitable organization within our country. And if it's over $20, that can go through them and they will transfer those funds to our local group to help kids in our community. You know, over and above the loss of the trailer and the stuff, that's one thing. What do you say to the kids who are standing there going, you know, these are kids are impressionable. You're trying to help them, lead them, and what have you. Uh, and I guess the end message will be the good that comes out of it with the people that help. But how, how are the kids feeling about this? Um, they all thought it sucked. I mean, let's <laughs> call, call a spade a spade. It, was, it yeah. was one of those things that they were disappointed in regards to it. But in the same vein, it was like, Okay, so if that happened, what do we do? And we have still gone out. We've still done things. We were out ice fishing at Valens Conservation Area a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the leaders pulled together our gear to make it happen. Plus, other scouting groups in the community have said, look, do you need something to get you through? Can we loan you equipment? So we've made it happen. And it's a lesson for the kids to say, you know what? You can, you can get a knock in life and you dust yourself off and you figure out a solution. You keep going. Lesson learned and hopefully a badge for everybody for that. Uh, good for you, Colin. Uh, Commissioner Colin Valentine of the First Port Nelson Scouts in Burlington. Uh, you can check out their website and their GoFundMe page if you can help them out uh, getting some gear that uh, much needed gear that has been lost. Cal, uh, Colin, thanks so much. Way to make a teaching moment and good luck moving forward. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time. What matters to you, what matters to Hamilton, matters to Scott. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've talked about housing a lot and even more so uh, in a post-pandemic world. Recommendations from Ontario's Housing Task Force uh, could see overhauling zoning, development charges, planning appeals, rules, just to say a bit. Let's bring in Dr. Frank Clayton, Senior Research Fellow. Center for Urban Research and Land Development with Ryerson and with us now. Frank, thanks for your time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Thank you. 
So your thoughts on what we're seeing from this task force and, and recommendations put forward, any surprises there for you? Uh, well, I, I agree with the need for increasing the supply and making it a lot easier getting through the planning process and getting more housing of all types on the market. I guess the surprise is that for me, the biggest surprise is when they came up with you know, 1.5 million new homes needed over uh, the next decade. That, that's, that's far in excess of anything I've seen before. I, I agree we need more housing than what we've been building, which is about 75,000 a year, but doubling that just seems, uh, you know, an unattainable target, even, even if it was desirable. So I think that's on the high side, but we, not that I take away from, we, we need more housing than we've been built and a range of housing, not just apartments. How did we get in this position, Frank? How did, cause we're, you know, we're a, uh, Ontario's a, a moving province. It's, you know, you know, it, it's probably more privileged than most. Why, why have we fallen into this, into this predicament? Well, the, the, I think the, the biggest pr- uh, thing is that the, uh, uh, the, the, the demand for housing turned out to be much greater than people were expecting, particularly in the last two years. And that's not, and, and it started with immigration, uh, and also the millennials, uh, getting into the home buying age groups. Uh, and the demand was extremely strong. And our supply system, because you need land and you need zone land for the kind of housing you want to build that people want to, that people demand. And if you don't have that, it takes a long time to get it through the system. So we didn't have uh, like a shovel-ready inventory of land that could be absorbed to, uh, to, uh, to accommodate this demand, increased demand. So we get the increased demand, and then, of course, people say, well, I'm going to buy an investment property, or I better buy now because next year the price is going to be higher. So that pushes prices up even higher, and that's where we're in right now. We're in this spiral of you know, prices going up because everybody thinks they've got to get in the market now. And, of course, there will be an adjustment coming up at some point in time, particularly when interest rates uh, start to go up. Uh, what were we expecting? Because markets do fluctuate. Uh, obviously, in real estate proving to be an investment now. But, I mean, you know, we've seen dips and in, in increases in that over, over decades and such. What were, you, what were we expecting? Were we expecting that well, people well, didn't want these I'm homes? Gonna, gonna, or yeah, was, I'm, is it an I'm urban density it. issue? Well, what it was under the growth plan when it came into effect back in about 2005, 2006, the liberals came in with it for, for the, the growth plan. And the growth plan discouraged low-density housing. The growth plan wanted really encouraged densification like Hamilton is, his council has decided to yeah. do. And densification means apartments, okay? 80% of the housing built in existing areas are apartments. The demand for housing from the millennials, they, they were moving into their mid-30s, uh, late 30s, and they wanted low-density housing. Uh, and, and so we had a mismatch of demand and supply. So that was deliberate, deliberate, deliberate government policy to to, uh, to restrict the supply of low-density housing when people want them. But as you said earlier, supply-demand equals higher prices. You know, if the demand doesn't keep up or, or is above the supply. And that's so obviously... Obviously, uh, wrong product for for the time. Did everybody just think that uh, these the, 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 this uh, generation would just jump into high density housing? That's exactly what the environmentalists and the planners expected and and want. And and that's really uh, what this is about, Frank, isn't it? it? It's like environmentalists trying to have higher density and stack people up as opposed to out. But the that idea has changed a bit post pandemic, has it not? Well, they, well, it goes back uh, with the Conservative Party getting elected. They revised the growth plan back in 2020, and they have a much more balanced situation. They, 
they have a balance of densification. At least 50% of all new housing, like in the city of Hamilton under the growth plan, has to be uh, in, in the build-up areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other 50%, so we can have 50% apartments, and we can have 50% uh, ground, you know, townhouses, uh, semis, and singles, and maybe even stacked townhouses and so on. Uh, in the build, uh, greenfield areas, but you need both. And so the, uh, the conservative plan was, let's have a balance between the environmental objectives and the housing objectives. And by that takes time to bring in. It's not something that come, happens overnight. You can't just turn this planning machine around overnight. Uh, what is the short-term solution? Is it because it seems we're scared of building? We don't like that word build. If you're build, like you said, you're anti-environment. Uh, well, what's going to happen, I'm afraid, is that uh, the market's going to come to a slowdown because of higher interest rates. And yeah. that'll give, if if the government follows through a lot of recommendations of the task force, they will set the groundwork for increasing the supply of all kinds of housing. Uh, so therefore, we get demand slowed down and our supply gradually increases, and that will help the problem. And uh, if they do try to target 150,000 units a year, which they talked about in this report, then, of course, there will be a huge spike of housing coming on the market. Uh, uh, whether that happens or not, that's uh, questionable. But we, I, I think it's in the right direction that we're going to, we got to increase the supply because we're going to have the demand because the immigrants are still going to be coming to our, our uh, province in huge numbers. And we now have the uh, Generation Z coming up behind the millennials. who They also want to, as they get older, they'll be wanting low density. A lot of them will be wanting low density housing. It's kind of funny, you know, some people have a house, but they don't want anybody else to have one. No, you go live in an apartment. <laughs> it's, it's funny to see this <laughs> right. change. I, I think, I think 70% of the people in Hamilton live in a single detached, semi-detached retirement houses, 70%, uh, 75%, I guess it is. And, <laughs> you know, the survey, they claim that the city claimed the survey showed that uh, 90% of the, all people don't want single detached houses they want they want the housing to be built in the build-up area yeah yeah well as long as i got mine i guess they're saying uh dr frank clayton senior research fellow center for urban research and land development at ryerson as always frank thanks for the time be well you're very welcome just to give you uh, a little bit of an update uh the prime minister pretty much keeping the same stance uh as he has uh in his um, uh, sort of tough line divisive stance with uh, the situation in regard to not only the protesters, but his approach to the pandemic moving forward. This after uh, a liberal uh, MP um, uh, by the name of Joel uh, uh, Lightbound has uh, resigned as uh, the Quebec caucus head and uh, has spoken out against how uh, this divisiveness that uh, the the direction the party started to go in uh, to, during the last election campaign has got to stop. And, and we've got to figure out a way to move forward instead of continually dividing people, uh, which is the stance that they uh, changed to the Liberal Party during the last election. Obviously, they beat the Conservatives or certainly uh, uh, won their minority back anyway. Uh, didn't get the, uh, the big prize, but certainly... Uh, beat the liberal or the conservatives again so painting them into a corner the vaccine mandate certainly worked but where does it go from here uh the protest still continuing we're seeing some disruptions along the ambassador bridge uh now that fuel lines have been disrupted to the ottawa protesters tickets arrests have taken place what is the path forward phil gursky with us president of borealis threat and risk consulting distinguished fellow with the university of ottawa's national security program and former analyst with CSIS. phil as always thanks for the time I hope you're well. 
How are you, Scott? Nice to talk to you again. Uh, we, we really haven't seen much of a change in stance in the Prime Minister uh, in regard, especially after the emergency meeting uh, that was last night or an MP speaking up today. Uh, would this, in your opinion, end or would at least be a chance that we could move forward if someone would just, you know, hear them, someone just give them some time to figure out exactly how to move forward? This is a really good and tough question, Scott. And, you know, um, irrespective of one's political leanings, I, I do feel for the government. I think this has been an extremely difficult situation to deal with. But clearly, uh, refusing to talk to anybody has not worked so far. These truckers aren't going anywhere. The hangers on aren't going anywhere. And I think you and I have talked about this before, before Scott. Winston Churchill once said, you know, it's jaw, jaw is more important than war, war. So I, I think at some point there are reasonable voices on both sides of this particular debate. And those reasonable voices can actually have a conversation. Whether it leads to some kind of a, a solution, I don't have the answer to that. But clearly, the take tough, the, the tough stand so far has not worked. And if you're in government, you, you're asking yourself, well, if this doesn't work so far, do we keep doing it or do we try another uh, another solution? Has the prime minister lost the room? Is it time for that new position, that new plan? Because this is, as much as this is the protest, uh, this MP spoke out just about general reaction and divisiveness in the pandemic. Uh, is it time for a new approach? Well, it, clearly it is, because what's happening so far isn't working. And the old adage, Scott, if, if something's not working, you keep doing it, you're kind of beating <laughs> your head against the wall, right? Mm. And I did. I wasn't aware of such divisiveness within the Liberal Party. That's an interesting development. But I do think that, you know, law enforcement in Ottawa and their allies have done whatever they can. Again, this is this is an excruciating situation for all of them to be placed in. A lot of calls for, well, just, just do this, just do that. And I don't know about you, Scott, but when, when I get advice from people who say, just do this, I like them to have some kind of background in the area. A lot of people commenting on police actions that never worked for the police, myself included. It says why I'm not advising them. But I, it, it, clearly, it seems to me that at this point, something else has to be at least tried and see where it goes. Uh, you said people, lots of advice. Why didn't they way back at the beginning do all of this? And, and, you know, why don't they just go in and drag them out? Why do they not go in and drag them out, Phil? What would that, what would be accomplished if that happened? Well, I think the greatest fear is, is perhaps a violent reaction. And what law enforcement yeah. wants to do is they want to, you know, resolve this issue as peacefully as possible and as quickly as possible. Well, clearly the quickly hasn't happened. It's what day 11 or day 12 of this thing, but they have to be very careful with the actions that they take for fear of sparking something much, much worse. I know that people are frustrated. I don't live in Ottawa anymore, Scott. I live in a small village south of Ottawa. I don't hear the horns. I don't hear the disruption, but you know, let police do their jobs. They're trained for these kinds of things, and they're trying to come up with the best solution possible given the circumstances. And I don't think this money boarding quarterbacking is really helpful in this regard. What about the fact that uh, there was uh, disruptions along the Ambas Ambassador Bridge earlier on today? Uh, obviously, a huge border crossing between Canada and the U.S. Well, it certainly is something which is reverberating around the world. You're seeing a lot of reports about American support for this. I've seen support for this in New Zealand. There are reports of support in other countries around the world. This is bigger than a Canadian protest. I think it speaks to months and months, years of frustration over what's happened with COVID. We all want to get back to normal. I and mean, who doesn't want to get back to normal, right? And I think that people have just reached the end of their limit. And they're seeing that perhaps certain government directions or edicts maybe aren't necessary anymore. And I won't comment on that because I'm not a scientist or a health expert, mm -hmm. but people are certainly, they're very frustrated and they simply want things to go back to the new normal. And this is, I think this is much, much bigger than what's happening in Canada right now.
What is a win in this? Um, because, again, it seems if we're looking for, for a win, we're never going to see one. This will be a compromise of, of, of some sort. Uh, you know, we've even heard that you, you, we were talking about earlier on towing and, and getting these rigs out of there. That's a massive, massive job just to tow one of these rigs, incredibly expensive. And many of the tow operators don't want to get involved in any in any of this what what is a win is there a win here well there's an attempt at a win and i think an attempt at a win is to sit down with those who are willing to sit down and i'm sure there are reasonable people on both sides of this divide who will say yes we'll have a chat you know when you go into negotiating sessions scott you ask for the moon and then you accept something quite less than that because you realize the other yeah. side's asking for the moon at the same time I'm hopeful that there's people who haven't lost their sense of reality anymore. Uh, you know, those calling for the overthrow of the government are clearly not going to get that. And it's it's no. not possible. But at least let's have a conversation on maybe things we can do to at least assuage or to satisfy some of the demands on both sides of the divide. And uh, just sit down and have a beer or a coffee or a tea and you know, jaw, jaw, like as Churchill said, let's have a conversation about it. It seems that we're having this discussion on the extreme, on the fringe. Why is that? Why, why do, like, you know, everyone's trying to point to their own example of why they're right. And they're pointing to the extremes. Um, how, how do you, how do you get them together? How do you find the center, the common ground? Well, I'm, I think that most are the center ground. I think there are extreme elements, and we've seen the same reports, I'm sure. People with a swastika flags or with the U.S. flags or whatever, people have desecrated the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers. Those are the extreme elements. But to the best of my knowledge, they're not all extreme elements. And so when politicians call them all terrorists, as one city, Ottawa City Councillor did, that's not helpful because calling truckers terrorists, A, is wrong, and B, is not helpful. Let's try to identify those with whom we can have a conversation. The extremists we may have to deal with in a different manner, but the extremists are the minority and painting them all with the same brush, whether it's on the government side or on the on the trucker slash protester side, is simply not going to aid us in getting to some kind of a resolution to, the, to this particular conflict. Uh, quickly, Phil, weekend coming. What are you expecting? Well, you know, I, I'm hoping that we'll measures will be put in place to prevent it from getting any larger. I'm not sure what those measures will be. I'll let police decide that. Let's just hope that, you know, eventually people will say enough's enough. We've made our point. It's time to go home or I'm not going to bother contributing to this. I don't know, Scott. I see tractors in my village going to Ottawa on the weekends as well. Let's just hope that cooler heads prevail in this, in this sense. Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program, former CSIS analyst. As always, Phil, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Last night, did you stay up? Did you watch women's hockey? And uh, an incredible game early on, but still beat uh, longtime rivals, uh, the U.S., by a score of 4-2. to two. To talk more about all of this, Steve Milton is with us, uh, legendary journalist for your Hamilton Spectator, and with us now. Steve, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, I am. Uh, Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You know, obviously, Steve, this ain't your first rodeo. You've seen a few Olympics in your time yeah. uh, there I'm and and here. So, uh, time, which is... Uh, sort of disconcerting but uh you know maybe you don't want to be at these ones yeah i hear you i hear you so as you watch this what stands out for this games that that's different from others is is, is it any different is the same sort of thing or is it a different buzz just because of the location and the fact that we're in a pandemic i i think you cannot escape the reality of the pandemic uh, scott and i i think it's just every time you look around you're pretty well reminded of it you you're 
you're you're uh, you're reminded that this isn't a, a winter sports town, uh, Beijing. Uh, <laughs> when you see, although the the venues look great, um, yeah. You know, when they show the panoramic shots, you can see it. You can see the the the, the brown <laughs> land all the way around. You know, it's all artificial yeah. snow. You can tell when it gets really really cold. The snow acts differently in some of the snow events, particularly the jumping events. And uh, so you recognize that, uh, and you're always on edge. Uh, I think everybody is wondering at the start of each event who's in it and who's not. And, and so you just can't. It hasn't got quite the escapism. And then let's not even forget the. We'll, we'll never forget the human rights situation as well. Yeah. That that most of us in the back of our mind didn't like to see the games go there in the first place. But uh, I don't think you can escape that. So it is very definitely different. That said. I've written this many times. The athletes always come through and rescue us yeah. in some form or another. And I think they're doing that already. So you brought up the snow, and I've seen exactly what you're talking about, how, you know, when you when you see the camera drift back a bit, you see this this line. It's like you're painting a wall in your house where the snow mm-hmm. stops and, yeah. and where nature continues on. And many have said that it's artificial snow. Well, it's artificially made. It's not really yeah. artificial snow. But you're no. saying there is very much a performance difference here. Can you elaborate I mean, on that? a difference at, at temperature levels, uh, mm-hmm. particularly on landing. I think you saw that um, – as it got colder um, in, uh, say, slope style, and a couple of those, and the odd, yeah. and, and the odd uh, one in the uh, normal hill and the ski jump as well, there wasn't as much bite at times at key, at, at, especially near the end, because that's when the top skier or uh, performers were coming down and they were, and you could see it coming up in kind of uh, not flakes, but kind of chunks. Now, that'll happen a bit as it gets cold with what mm-hmm. you might call quote unquote natural snow. And you're correct to point it out, it's real water. I mean, yeah. that's. That's the way it is. That's a whole other story when we talk environmentally about how much water goes into that in a, in a water-starved area. So, I mean, <laughs> that's another it. that's another great point, man. How much water would it have taken to uh, create, you know, an Olympic village? That's I never even thought of that. Well, All right, uh, go ahead. Five swimming pools or something, Olympic swimming pools, which doesn't seem like a lot to me. I thought it would have been more. So. So last night, the big game against the United States. Yep. Obviously, it's early in this tournament, but how significant is this win? Uh, I, I think it's good. Um, I, I, it didn't, co- you know, I mean, th- one expects that, that these two end, end up in the finals because every year but one in the Olympics they have. Yeah. And, and uh, so you would expect that. Um, but I think it was, a, it served, Canada got the win and so therefore got some momentum and felt good about some things. But there was also... Uh, enough problems in there, Scott, that, that, that I think they've got to be cautious about that are good coaching points uh, for the head coach because uh, at the two things, well, three things, really, um, and they're kind of interrelated. Uh, one of the turnovers at the Canadian Blue Line, making mm-hmm. that extra step at that speed with closer checking, that was kind of a reflection, I think, on both teams. I think the play wasn't as good as some of us had expected because these teams have been off for a long, long time, not other than the, the few games they just played here. I mean, you know, for a month, they hadn't played any games when they should be at the height of their game. Uh, that'll come, and, and it is. And it was coming. There were some beautiful moments last night. But the turnovers by Canada, particularly just before the blue line, and I think that was partly from not having played a good team since they last played the Americans, which was, what, early January or something like that, or, or even before that. And, and uh, so they, you know, they thought they had a little more time than they did. Uh, penalties. That Canada took, which yeah. suggests some kind of disciplinary thing, but they could be related to turnovers too. 
And thirdly, and these are all interrelated, the number of shots that they surrendered uh, to, to the U.S. You can't, I don't think, and we have a note in the spec notes column today that says that, I don't think you can get away with that twice in, the, in, in, in a few days against a team like the Americans. They're going to make you pay for it the second time. So that's actually in a good, good thing for Canada because it's a teaching point. It's something, you know, you've got the, got the momentum, but you've also got, uh, oh, yeah, look, we, we won and we didn't do this. And we yeah. need to do this, or or it's going to come back and bite us in the butt. All right, we can always expect big things, and we do from our women's hockey team, uh, especially of late. That being said, men's, what what do you expect there? We've got about a minute left, and obviously no NHL. What are you expecting? I just want to watch it. You know that? Yeah. I just want to see how some of these players do. I don't expect a whole bunch, but you know maybe this team can come together. They've got. I mean, when you look at the, at, at, uh, McTavish, who plays for the Bulldogs, who's the youngest player on the team, and you got Stahl, who's the captain, who's what, 19 years older than him? Mm. Or double his age. I think they're 36 and, oh, yeah, something like that. They're 18 years older than him. Uh, and I kind of like, I want to see what that looks like, and can they come together, and can they create some kind of Cinderella thing? I don't think they can be considered a, a medal favorite because they, you know, they really were put together in a hurry on that, as, as were a lot of teams, but a lot of other teams had, Sort of, sort of standing ways that they could do that. Um, I, I, I think it'll be kind of interesting. Um, I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure where it, where it will end up there. I'd have to say that the that, that the Russians and and and, uh, and maybe the Swedes who have more players that are coming from their domestic leagues uh, will be favored uh, there. Um, but you know, you never know. This could be one of those, uh, darling, this seems to be the era right now, Scott, for darling Canadian teams, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, good uh, point. Uh, you know, when you take both <laughs> soccer teams and you, and you take the hockey teams and I mean, you know, it, it, it could be, you know, Watching the Olympics with Steve Melton, journalist with the Hamilton Spectator. You can read all of Steve's stuff in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Steve, thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, Scott. Thanks for thinking of me. All right. Uh, as uh, the Ottawa protest rolls into day 12, many are concerned what may happen uh, as the weekend rolls around and how do they um, uh, slow this thing down? How do they bring it to an end? How do they stop it from feeding itself? Uh, and what makes this protest uh, and why has this pro- uh, protest been so different uh, than any other uh, that we've seen in Canada? Let's bring in Regina Bates, an assistant professor, uh, assistant professor with the Graduate School of Public and Inter- International Affairs at the University of Ottawa, Executive Communications for Women Also Know, and formerly with the U.S. State Department and is with us now. Regina, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Well, thanks for having me. So uh, here's the million-dollar question, Regina. How, how does the Prime Minister move forward with this? Uh, do we need to talk? Is it a case of just uh, yelling at people to go away and they will? Or do, do these people need to be acknowledged? Does there have to be some sort of negotiation or communication? Well, I think the first issue is that there's a lack of strategy right now, and it's not even clear to me what a successful outcome here would look like, Mm. either from the perspective of the people who are occupying part of downtown Ottawa or from the perspective of the city, provincial or federal governments. So if you don't have objectives for either side and you don't have appointed negotiators, uh, there isn't really much path toward negotiation. And in fact, um, it seems as though the federal government has been very clear that they don't intend to participate in negotiations with this group. 
Uh, sort of comparing, uh, comparing them, and this, these are my words, not theirs, uh, comparing them to a terrorist organization. You don't, uh, you, you don't negotiate, uh, with terrorists. You don't negotiate people who aren't playing, uh, the same game that you are playing. However, um, this is, uh, you know, right in, uh, the parliamentary precinct of, of Ottawa. Um, can you, can you equate the two? Um, if you negotiate with them or even speak to them, is that a sign of weakness here? Well, I can't really speak for the folks who are making decisions at different levels of government, but I can say that obviously there needs to be some path forward and there hasn't really been, um, very much action tactically uh so the right they're not really pursuing a strategy of confrontation with the group they're not pursuing a strategy of negotiation either at least in any active way that the public can perceive and so what we really find ourselves in is a stalemate at the moment and perhaps that feels like a victory for the folks who are occupying the city because they've succeeded in taking some pretty valuable real estate that has symbolic value and is attracting significant media attention for them and fueling further donations to their cause. But for the residents of the city of Ottawa, um, a stalemate is a disaster because Mm. their daily lives have been upended. They're being subjected to harassment, intimidation, um, can't access a significant portion of the city. And for Canadian democracy, it poses some serious threats as well, both the stated aims of the group, which are an unconstitutional seizure of power, and uh, the fact that the norms of how political life is conducted here are really being upended as we speak. You talked about a lack of a plan. It seemed as if initially with all of this, nobody really took them seriously, the protesters seriously, uh, and, and it was sort of like a wait them out kind of thing. But clearly that hasn't worked. Yeah, I think there were there have been two issues since the beginning. So the first question is, what level of government should be dealing with this? And persistently, the federal government and the province have kicked the entire matter to the city of Ottawa. Meanwhile, the Ottawa police have consistently said that they're outnumbered, they're not equipped to handle this kind of situation, and they're not even in a position to make strategic decisions about political outcomes, you know, and this is a uh, political group with political aims that's here. So the delegation of responsibility for this entire matter to the Ottawa police, I think, was perhaps the first problem and continues to be a problem. Um, and then there's the question of trying to figure out what's, what type of group this is and what type of events are unfolding. And the Ottawa police have told us they initially viewed this as a protest, a normal protest, like any other protest. And so that was how they policed it from the beginning, it was like a normal demonstration. Um, but the group's stated aims were always far different than that. And in fact, it morphed into an occupation. Now that is morphing into an even more serious political conflict with significant foreign involvement. So it remains mind boggling to me that the federal government continues to have this posture where it's the city of Ottawa's job um, to handle this matter of national security. Even to push any of the responsibility to the provinces, and we've seen last week that happened as there was, you know, protests in various provinces across the country, but clearly this is not a provincial issue. It is a federal issue. It's on federal land. Wellington Street is part of the parliamentary federal precinct. So uh, I can certainly see, um, uh, you know, that this has landed on the prime minister's doorstep is it not for him to at least lead the way and then get the others involved uh, again i'm not sure how the mayor of ottawa is feeling about the prime minister's office today 
Well, different levels of city government have repeatedly called for more federal support and more federal intervention. For example, city councilor Catherine McKenney has repeatedly stated clearly their desire for the federal government to take responsibility for the portion of this that's um, in the parliamentary precinct and then for the city of Ottawa's police services to be able to focus on the residential areas that surround that. Um, and that there just hasn't been action, right? So what we have is a group of people on the ground who are moving very fast and institutions and elected officials that just seem stuck, right? They just seem paralyzed. They're moving very, mm. very slowly. And meanwhile, the situation escalates and escalates and escalates. I uh, only got a few seconds left. Where do you see this going by the weekend? Nowhere good. <laughs> mm. Um, I mean, there's more and more political support and money that's probably going to be flowing in from the United States. And so I see this as a well-established group that has significant power here on the ground. Regina Bateson with us, Assistant Professor, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa, Executive Communications for Women Also Know, formerly with the U.S. State Department. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. We've been talking uh, pretty much most of the day, uh, emergency meeting uh, debate held last night in the House of Commons uh, in regard to uh, the protests and the divisiveness in the uh, in the country and such. Uh, the prime minister pretty much held his ground saying uh, not much has changed and, you know, went on about following the science despite Dr. Tam, Dr. Bonnie Henry from B.C., Dr. Kieran Moore from Ontario, all saying it's time to look at a plan to move forward and uh, live with this pandemic. Uh, the prime minister continued with this divisive tone. And then this morning, uh, one of his MPs, liberal MP Joel Lightbound, uh, decided to come forward and talk about how um, how disappointed he is that a divisive stance was made during the election campaign in order to create a wedge issue between the conservatives and the liberals. And immediately they went from not being uh, enforcing mandatory vaccine to all of a sudden changing their position, knowing that this would force uh, the liberals into a corner, which of course it did. And uh, the liberals went on to continue their minority Minority, uh, minority government, of course, didn't win uh, the majority. What is the impact of such statements that we're hearing today? Let's bring in Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He's with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. So your thoughts on this MP speaking out today, especially if, especially when the Prime Minister basically gave the opposite message uh, the night before in regard to the emergency meeting, uh, he's basically calling out this divisiveness. How does that resonate in the Liberal Party? Yeah, although obviously we've seen historical moments both in this country and abroad when certain members of a party, whether it be a leader, a cabinet minister, or a backbencher, speak out in a fairly public way this one was actually kind of shocking, no matter how you look at it, no matter what your partisan bent is, just because of what you said. Last night, <clears throat> it looked like the Liberal Party had basically taken a direction and was pretty set that they were going to move forward with things such as, you know, maintaining mandatory vaccinations for essential workers, for truckers, um, continuing whatever regulations, be they strict or, un you know, or less so as time goes along depending on COVID case count, you know, the number of people in the ICUs, etc. And it looked like they had a pretty defined plan. And it is quite astonishing that someone spoke out. Now, to be fair, a lot of people probably don't know who Joel Lightbound is. And 
you know, it's interesting. He's um, he's a he's a lawyer. He's about 34 years old, based in Quebec, in a riding which has flipped back and forth between all the major parties and even the old federal PCs at one point over a course of basically three decades. It's actually one of the least um, politically safe ridings in the country, I think you can say, and one of the most volatile. But he's this fellow Lightwood has actually held it, oh, sorry, Lightbound, has actually held it for three terms. So basically all the times that Justin Trudeau has won a federal election. So he's pretty secure in that role. He's held a variety of parliamentary secretary positions. Um, he was the chair of the Quebec caucus. He's, he was the chair of the industry committee. He's held some pretty good roles. And at one point, he was actually regarded very early on in the Trudeau government's life, lifespan in about 2015, 2016, as a potential uh, rising star in the party and possibly a cabinet minister. So this is an astonishing break with his party, and it's a very clear one as well. You know, just to take one very quick quote, this is something he said from his presser. You know, it is time we stop dividing people, pitting people against each other. The tone and policies of my government have changed since, you know, election, the the, the recent election, and now the approach stigmatizes and divides people. That's pretty stern words, even from a backbencher, but someone who was held in very high esteem by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and a lot of his senior advisors for quite a long period of time. So in the end of the day, this was all about an election strategy. How do you think that's going to fly with the public? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, you, you've got uh, somebody prominent within the party saying, you got to change direction here. Your election strategy that you had during the campaign is now dividing the country so many months out. Um, d- does the prime minister change direction? How does he, how does he address this MP? Well, to be fair, Lightbound wouldn't be called a prominent uh, member of his caucus any longer. He actually does not hold a parliamentary secretary position. And not long after his press conference, a few hours afterwards, he announced that he was stepping down as the Quebec caucus chair, or more likely... But as you mentioned, he was, he was very much an up-and-comer. Yes, he was at one point, but he hasn't been for a while. The interesting thing is he actually has not been a parliamentary secretary or held that role since last August. Now... There are rumors that he apparently asked to be removed from that position and removed from consideration for any other role. So there may have been dissension within the ranks, or it could simply be that Trudeau decided to move elsewhere and look to other people. So there may have been a problem that way. But regardless of the fact, the fact that a sitting member of his caucus spoke out against them in very, very strong terms means that obviously Justin Trudeau has some dissension within the ranks of his party when it comes to mandatory vaccinations. Now, Mr. Lightbound has suggested that other liberal MPs also feel the same way. Now, he didn't name anyone, and that could just be talk. But if it's true, it means that others are sort of reaching a breaking point as well. And you could see that the strategy of mandatory vaccinations, which obviously has led to the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa, the, the one-day protests in Toronto, other things that have happened through Alberta, the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, et cetera, et cetera, and may now even lead to a possible freedom convoy, which is being talked about in Australia very soon. It, it's turned into a bit of a mess for Justin Trudeau, and you could see, even as he was being encountered by uh, various reporters and media scrums, you could tell that by the tone in his, in his voice that obviously he's not only frustrated in general, He's obviously concerned and frustrated with what's happening. 
because he knows that he's going to get hammered in the House of Commons, and his government will as well. And this is not one of those one-day news stories that suddenly disappears yeah. from the news cycle. It's something that could potentially last for a while. And if anybody decides to follow Mr. Lightbound and do the same thing, well, that could be deadly for the Liberal government. It doesn't mean they'll fall, obviously, but it means that they could have a lot of problems on their hands. So uh, we've only got a few seconds left. Does this sure. just go away, as you said? Or at the end of the day, the Prime Minister still needs a plan to move forward on this? Yeah, he's going to have to plan no matter what. I mean, eventually it will obviously go away, especially if Mr. Lightbone's the only one who speaks out. But a lot of people are going to remember this, and the opposition parties are obviously going to use this to their advantage, stating that, you know, for all this period of time or for a long period of time, the Liberal government has basically been a united force, seemingly, when it came to something like mandatory vaccinations for truckers and other essential workers. If there is this break and if others do follow suit, that's something they can obviously use advantageously in stating that, look, is this really the position of the government? Or is this basically a group of people, individuals, including the prime minister, controlling an agenda that clearly some liberals are bothered by? It's an easy way to spin it. It's an easy way to twist it. And no matter how the liberals try to push back against it, which they obviously will, it's not going to work very well, which means that this backbench MP and previously this so-called you know, rising star in the party may have given them and caused them a lot of headaches for the next few weeks. Michael Tobe, columnist with Troy Media and Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You too. Throughout this entire pandemic, it seems we've heard, uh, as well as the term pivot, uh, we've also heard the phrase, follow the science. And whenever this gets political, that seems to be what we hear, follow the science. However, that has proved difficult at times when sometimes uh, people are looking at it from two different perspectives. But obviously there was an emergency meeting in the House of Commons last night on not only the protests, but the direction the country is going in with all of this. Uh, the Prime Minister pretty much uh, doubling down on what he has been saying and, um, and going after the unvaccinated. Uh, and when asked what the solution is, he said he's following the science. However, uh, we talked about this before. A couple of weeks ago, it was Dr. Bonnie Henry and Dr. Kieran Moore, Bonnie Henry from B.C., Dr. Kieran Moore from Ontario, saying it's time to uh, learn to live with this. It's time to talk about opening up. It's time to, uh, and again, this doesn't mean, you know, open the barn doors and run out into the field of daisies naked, uh, but do a common sense approach. But we've got to change uh, our stance and and live with this. Uh, Dr. Tam uh, echoed this uh, earlier on uh, a week ago. So uh, what is the science? Uh, because it seems that as we're seeing things open up, that it's uh, a little contradictory. Let's bring in Timothy Sly, epidemiologist uh, in the School of Population and Public Health uh, with Ryerson with us now. Tim, thanks for your time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, Scott. Thank you. So it, it's kind of, we always hear follow the science, and usually when someone wants to make someone else not look that smart, they say follow the science, uh, as if one knows more than the other. But again, you know, we've been hearing from Dr. Tam, Dr. Uh, Kieran Moore, Dr. Bonnie Henry, it's time to, to start looking forward uh, with this. What does the science actually say about this stage of Omicron in the global pandemic? 
Well, we are, we are, we've been in this epidemic phase for a long time, and it's been quite clear that the end point in this thing will be some form of an endemic phase. And I just heard a couple of days ago that there were there's some people who've taken the word endemic, and the first three letters of that is end, and they <laughs> think that, that means the end of everything, the end of all the precautions and protections and so on. Of course, it doesn't mean that at all. If you look around mm-hmm. the world, you've got malaria, tuberculosis, really serious killers, and they're, they're endemic in much of the world. So endemic doesn't mean that. It simply means that, uh, that it settles down to the fact that we, we've got a fairly steady number. It may be seasonal going up and down a little bit like influenza does, uh, but we've got, we, we, we live with it in the sense that we're not increasing. We're not allowing it to increase to the two target problems. The two target populations are, one, you know, the, uh, the medical staff and hospital. I just heard yesterday that the, that the head of the hospitals in Hamilton uh, saying it's going to be uh, many weeks before they begin to get back onto the postponed surgery yep, that they had yep. to postpone for. That's the kind of problem. And the other target group, of course, are the really vulnerable people and the older people, nasty, crusty old people like me, probably are going to be looking at uh, uh, some form of distancing, masking, and so on for the foreseeable future whenever they get to a sports game or a theater or go on mass transit. Uh, we're hearing uh, provinces talking about uh, loosening restrictions. Saskatchewan, I think, was the first to talk about that today. Ontario, obviously, in a couple of weeks uh, later this month, will will start doing the same. Quebec also uh, announcing. Is it time for that? Yeah, it's it's not what you do, but it's how you do it and yeah. and the rate at which you do it. And I think you had a good thing right at the top, Scott. Uh, everybody, when the, when the politicians are saying, you know, let's throw out all of these re- restrictions and, and precautions and so on, you throw them out, you go back to normal. Well, behind the scenes, there's a lot of public health people looking at the data and saying, this, it's a bit too soon to rush into this. Let's do it by all means. I mean, we're sick and tired of this. I want to get back to restaurants, so do you, probably everybody else, but uh, just to throw it all away, that's going to take some steps backwards. This virus is still in the driving seat. It's, it's been in the driving seat for two years, and it can take us for another ride if we do things uh, carelessly. So yes, let's aim toward getting back to normal, but step by step, keeping an eye on the indicators as they come in. And those indicators have changed. There used to be the incidence rate, you know, the yeah, average number yeah. of people every day. You know, we throw that out because you're not even counting them anymore. We're not counting tests anymore because there's very few of those being done. But the indicators we do look at are our hospitalization, ICU rate, and the amount of virus we're isolating from the sewage from large cities, the, uh, the wastewater tr- rate, and those are pretty reliable indicators. And so far, fingers crossed, they're going down in Ontario pretty pretty steadily going down. As long as they go down, we can begin to cautiously open up and, and be careful. But, but the problem is it doesn't mean, for example, if we, if we begin to mix more and, and reduce uh, uh, maximum limits in restaurants and so on, it doesn't mean to say that we then throw away the mask. We almost want to increase those small token things, not really token things, but effective things like making sure you're vaccinated and make sure that Uncle George is vaccinated and all. If we're Mm -hmm. going to get back to more people in in one space, we've got to increase those things as well for a time being. Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, School of Population, Public Health, Ryerson University. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Anytime. Bye-bye. 
as you know, February is Black History Month. Let's bring in Lisa Weaver, Director of Collections and Program Development with the Hamilton Public Library, Central Library, located at 55 York Boulevard in the Hammer. And Lisa is with us now. Lisa, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much. And I just wanted to remind everyone that we've got 24 locations across the city. So while we are at the downtown branch, we are also all across the city. There are libraries everywhere. Jump in and uh, and get involved. And same with these programs. Tell us what Black History Month means to the Hamilton Public Library. What sort of programming do you have around these uh, this month? We've got a lot of great virtual programming happening and also a lot of passive programming happening. So if your schedule doesn't allow you to join one of our live virtual programs, we also have a lot of activities that are available for download so families can enjoy them at home or people can discover collections on their own time, whether it's by visiting a branch to um, to borrow from one of our Black History Month displays or visit us online at hpl.ca and access one of our digital collections. One of the programs that I'm most interested in is this Saturday's author conversation happening with some young adult authors and they are well-published authors who are going to be talking about not only their books but also the steps that you need to take to become a published author. One of them actually even has a YouTube channel on all the steps she took to become a published author. So I think for authors of all ages, it'll be a great way to just talk and hear from those authors about that process. And so there'll be a Q&A part in that program as well on Saturday. Three amazing black young authors also facilitated by the conversation facilitated by a young black Canadian author. Man, you know, it's like everything. If you want to know how to do something, there's probably a YouTube video for that. But my goodness, getting a book published, you wouldn't think. Um, talk a little bit about uh, how these authors got into what they're doing, especially at a young age. What inspired them? What are you seeing as a common denominator there? I really think it is visiting the library and getting connected to books. When you look at the authors who are presenting on Saturday, as well as our former junior librarian, Inara, who was featured on today's uh, Spectator front page, it's getting linked to the books, to the authors, to the subjects, to the topics that you're interested about. And not every book is a winner. So you need to keep reading, keep reading, keep looking, keep browsing the shelves and find the thing that you can get connected with. And it doesn't always have to be, again, a physical book. It can be an audio book. It can be a digital book. And it can be one of the many thousands of magazines that we have, too. There's so much great Uh, literature published, short stories, poetry, in various formats for people to connect with. It seems that society is becoming more aware of social issues. Um, I don't know if I want to go as far to say as we're making great strides, but at least we're talking uh, about, uh, you know, Black History Month and Indigenous issues and such more and more often. Have you seen an increase in demand and more and more people wanting to learn more about Black History Month and, and, and what has gone on? You're totally right about that. Um, Our digital list of Black History, Black Voices titles that we had curated actually only had four titles available for loan this morning. And so we added a few hundred more titles to that list. I don't think in the last four years of curating that list that I've ever seen that list get to such a low number of available titles. So the titles that we are curating with Black History, Black Voices are getting checked out. The same things with our Indigenous voices and other diverse voice lists too. 
Um, I think you're you're right. What folks are seeing, folks are curious about, and people are reading and discovering on their own. Whether it's through fiction or nonfiction, um, people are able to discover the stories and histories that they're interested in in their own ways through the library. Why is it important for, uh, you know, people may say, well, an author's an author. What difference does it make what race, religion, whatever they're from? Why is it important for these voices to be heard? I think it's just the diverse voices and the diverse perspectives that people bring to the table. Every single story that we've read, whether it's about baseball or whether it's about cooking or whether it's about coming to Canada, however folks have come to Canada, um, and then the Indigenous people who are here, everyone has had a different experience and everyone tells their story in a different way. And so again, whether you're choosing fiction or nonfiction, whether you're choosing a male voice or a female voice, or whether you're choosing a Indigenous voice or a new Canadian voice, we all may we all may be living in Hamilton, but we experience it in a different way, and therefore we share those stories in a different way. And everyone's going to connect with a different story. But if you want to learn about how we got to where we are in Hamilton right now, I think it's important to read from a diverse and listen to diverse perspectives, um, so that we can come to our own understandings. And how do we find out more, Lisa? The best thing to do is visit hpl.ca online or visit a local branch. There's tons of displays and a lot of friendly staff available to connect with in branches. But again, if it's not convenient for you to come into one of our branches, visit us on hpl.ca, browse the collections, connect with us online. We've got chat, email, and phone. Um, So there's always a friendly HPL library worker available to help you with your questions and get you connected with the material you're looking for hpl.ca that's hpl.ca or of course not just the downtown central library but every location in the city as uh, hamilton public library celebrate black history month lisa radner weaver with us director of collections and program development with the hamilton public library central uh, library lisa thank you so much for the time and insight good luck moving forward with this thank you Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.